Let me ask you this question. It's an honest question. What's it like to wait for something? I hate it. I remember growing up as a, uh, when I was younger, I believe it was high school, we, my family and I were going to be heading off to Florida. And I knew it was coming, and I had to wait for it. And you're so excited, right? You're so excited that you get to take this trip to, to go to Disneyland and to go down the Tower of Terror or whatever it may be. Some people are excited to see Mickey Mouse. I, you know, I'm, I'm like, I like the rides. But, you know, uh, you're, you're, you're excited, you're, you're pumped, but you still have to wait for this time period to, to come and to go. Yesterday, I was talking with some of the young adults and talking about how long it took them to even fly here. And some of them are like 21 hours to fly here. I'm like, that's a long period to wait uh, in a plane, in a tube uh, that somehow miraculously flies to the sky. Uh, you know, we're, we got to wait for these things. And I remember hearing that it's so difficult. Waiting can be so hard. And, and, and our patience really comes, comes in, you know, even uh, with Christmas approaching as a kid. I'm not going to lie. I was one of those kids that became a professional unwrapper of gifts. <laughs> I could unwrap that present. But it made it worse. It didn't make it better. Because then you knew exactly what was there. And you're like, ooh, you know. Waiting can be so hard. There's good things that are going to happen, and we long for those good things to happen, and we, we kind of sit there, we're just waiting. And as we look at these few verses, so if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Zephaniah, continuing on. Pastor Matt had a nice, good, long chunk to preach through, and I have three verses. Uh, it's, it's the luck of the draw, Okay. Uh, it's just how it happens. Um, but if you have your Bibles with you, Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 8 to 10 is where we're going to be as we continue in our, ser- in our sermon series looking at the minor prophets. And in this, we see this idea that you have to wait. In these first few verses, there's a charge to wait. Wait for God. But it's not all good things that are happening here. There are some not-so-comfortable things that are happening in that charge to wait for God. So waiting is hard. But these next few, few verses are also incredibly encouraging. So if you have your Bible, open them up to Zephaniah 3. We're going to be verses 8 to 10. The word of the Lord says this. For at that time I... Oops, sorry. For, therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time, I will change the speech of the people to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the river of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. So in this first section, 
see this charge in verse 8. In this first part of verse 8, we see a waiting for the Lord that has to happen. There's this charge that comes for, that comes forward in here. But the question is this, is what does it mean to wait for the Lord? What does it look like? See, God, as, as Pastor Matt was preaching about last week, and as we've been looking through Zephaniah, God has been warning and sending warning after warning to his people. He's like, come, come back, come back. He's sending people after people, but they just haven't listened. And now he will rise as a witness against all of their rebellion, against who he is as holy God, who alone is worthy to be praised, who alone is worthy to be trusted, who alone is to be honored and glorified. God has punished the nations to get them to repent, but that object lesson still hasn't happened. I was one of those kids. Everybody was. I was talking at our prayer meeting a few weeks ago. I was reminded that there were some kids like that about how many times it took. And remember back in the day when they did the strap? There's some kids who did like, there was a lot of straps for some of these kids. For me, I would probably have learned the first time. But God here, he comes over and over. He's disciplining them over and over again out of his love. And they just keep denying And what we saw last week with Pastor Matt is that we are radically depraved people and God in his love and his grace extends discipline to call them back to him, calls us to repent, and but yet they still continue to reject them and chase after their own desires. So Zephaniah follows up with these amazingly thundering words that were intended to strike fear into the hearers of, and their hearts. Wait for me. You know, when God comes along and he just says, wait, you listen. Wait for me. He says in verse 8, he is coming and they will answer for what they have done. But thankfully, this isn't the end of this book. Thankfully, this isn't even the end of these few verses. After chapters of devastating critique and withering rebuke, grace now leaps onto the stage, and it cannot be any more refreshing. So in verse 8, it says, Therefore, look back. Remember, as we've been walking through Zephaniah, as God every once in a while brings up the faithful endurance of those who are seeking righteousness, who are seeking to be faithful. He calls those people, as he says, wait for. And if you were to look at the original language here, you would see that there's a shift in the tense from this third plural to a second plural. And he hasn't used this tense since back in in, in Zephaniah 2, verses 1 to 3. In verse 3, it says this, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Who is God telling to wait? It's the very people who have sought the Lord and have humbled themselves. And that's who is beginning to be addressed here. Who seek righteousness and humility. These are the ones that God tells to wait for him. And we see this all the way back in in Isaiah 64, verse 4. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those 
who waits for him. For that day, as he continues on, for that day when I rise up to seize the prey, literally this is saying as a witness or as, a, as he testifies. God himself will be the one. He calls those who have humbled themselves to wait for him for what he is about to do. As he stands as the holy God who accuses and judges, he comes to make right what has been made wrong. And he comes and he gives us two reasons for why we should wait for the Lord. Two reasons why we should do this. And the first one is because he will punish the wicked of the earth. And the second is that he will save his people from the nations, reversing the effects of sin. So in verse 8b, in that second part of verse 8, we see that waiting for the Lord's punishment. And that's what I mean. Sometimes waiting for God, you have to get through some rough times in order to get to the good times. The people of God should persist in our hope of salvation because God's determination of punishing all of earth's rebels hasn't happened yet. And we see that he says this, for my decision, for my decision for justice and and judgment, the nations will stand accused as rebels. And he will gather all the nations, all people groups. There is no one that is exempt from what is about to happen. No one. He's going to gather all of them. And he's going to gather, he's going to assemble the kingdoms, all political powers. I was thinking about this as we were approaching this election. We sit down, we whine and complain all the time about our politicians, right? I think sometimes a lot of our whine and complaining is because we don't rest in the fact that God is a sovereign one. He's the one who actually put him there. Do we understand that? God is sovereign. But at one time, at the end of time, he will assemble all of them together to give an account for what they have done. I rest in that. I cry out with a whole lot of whys and what in the world is going on? Like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, just logically, it doesn't make any sense. But someday, he will gather the nations He will assemble the kingdoms, all political parties, all those people who are ruling, and we're just like, oh, what are you doing? And what does he say here? He continues on. He says, to pour, why is he going to do this? To pour out upon them my indignation. That's a powerful word. It's wrath. God has warned, and now he will wipe out all sin. And some of us can cry out foul. God, why, how, how can you do that? But I'm very thankful that I have a just God. Because if I don't have a just God, he won't do what he did before. If there's not a just God, when I'm in my suffering, when I'm being persecuted for my faith, there is no hope. God is just. And because he is just, he must punish all rebellion. And he will pour out his indignation, all my burning anger. One commentary used the word molten anger. And you just think about this, right? This, this phrase, he's going to pour out his indignation, pour out his burning anger. And you kind of like think about when you're watching those videos on, on YouTube or something of, of a volcano, 
you know, Hawaii, and, and as it erupts and the lava pours down, nothing is stopping the lava from going in. It's molten. It burns everything in its way. Nothing can stand before that. This is God's anger as he pours out. He's calling us to wait for his punishments. And he does it for in the fire of my jealousy, for the honor of his name. Because our God is a jealous God. Not how we view jealous. Because our jealousy is often messed up in some sort of sense of entitlement. I deserve that. I've worked for 40 years. I deserve that. Yeah. That's not God's jealousy. He created the universe. He deserves it. For God judges everyone in their sinfulness. No one would escape it. From Ethiopia to the coast of Canaan to Assyria, he judges the nations for callously rejecting his own people. He would judge the nations for proudly rejecting him. And he judges those who knew themselves as God's people, at least externally. And God comes and he points to all the nations and and Judah to say that he is the judge of the world. He makes no distinctions. You know, there's this great myth that there is, uh, that if you come and you get baptized and you become a member of a church, you're good to go. That you're safe. But Zephaniah in these words was talking to the people of God who were living in the city of God. They were talking to the people who were sitting in the pew. Not to the people who weren't. And they had the signs of the promise of God. They were the people of God. At least externally. But they would be judged by God and would be lost because they were resting in other things but the creator and the sustainer of the world. So the question comes out here is, what are you resting in today? So for you, Christian, make sure that you are searching your soul. The Bible calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. To work it through to ask yourself these hard questions, to turn from sin, to identify it and turn from it and to repent of it and to turn to God. Because this is the thing, right? God's people in Zephaniah were constantly told to repent and to turn from their sin, but they didn't. They continued in their sin. So externally, they were showing that they were the people of God in how they dressed, in their religious ceremonies, whatever it may be, but internally their hearts were not ones that trusted God as God and who is creator and sustainer of all things, who is the only one who can save. But if you're not a Christian, I really want you to think about what the Bible is saying here. God will judge everyone. Zephaniah's prophecy reaches out and points to you. It points to me. God will judge. But there's an amazing scandal that comes of, 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 uh, apparent here. The scandal of the gospel is what we see in Romans 4, verse 5. 
And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Thank God he justifies the ungodly. If the ungodly will put their faith in Christ, and just as judgment will come on all those who rebelled against God, so does his salvation flow freely to all of those who put their trust in him. To only to those people and not to the nations. See, for me, as I look through this, there's, there's a couple of things that really pop out for me. I am utterly amazed that God has saved me. Utterly amazed. Because I'm deserving of the indignation of his wrath being poured out. Like, I deserve that. I've sinned against the holy God, and I deserve that. And the only option I have is to fall on my face before God and say, God, praise you. Thank you for saving my soul. To humble myself, just like what Zephaniah was saying back in Zephaniah 2, verse 3, to to humble myself before God, to seek righteousness, to seek humility. But the second thing that comes out for me as I reflect upon this, it really sends me out, doesn't it? When I understand that God is assembling the nations, that he's assembling the kingdoms to do one thing, to pour out his indignation, all of his burning anger upon them, what is my reaction to my neighbor who doesn't confess Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior? See, understanding these verses sends me out pleading with people be reconciled to God. Hell is not a place where you get to go and have a party with your friends. Hell is a place where God pours out his wrath upon you. And as we get into these next few verses, we have to remind it that it's also God who changes hearts. But how can that contain all that God has done for me? If I grasp the holiness of God, if I grasp how bad my sin is in comparison to his holiness, if I grasp what he has saved me from, my only reaction is praise and joy and to send out to other people. Do you understand that our lack as a church for myself, my lack of my ability to go across the street and tell people about Jesus is because I lack his un- his, an understanding of his holiness? Do, I, do you understand that? That's why I repent very a lot about this. Right? God is holy. And he is just. But he is gracious and he is merciful. And there's this amazing scandal in this gospel message that he justifies the ungodly for all of those who repent and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. Such as judgment partially resolves the plot's conflict, it still leaves open this fate of the humble of the earth that we see about in in, in chapter 2, verse 3. Since all sinful people are removed in verses 8, the faithful remnant can now serve God with no hindrance. And these few verses, I, I desperately long for this. This is an amazing picture of what God is going to do. 
Amazing picture. We don't just see a God who is just, but also He in His He is holy in His love, and He and He calls us to wait upon the promises that He has. We see this the waiting for the Lord's promise in verses nine to ten. And it's amazing. For at that time, what does it say? I will. God, I will change the speech of the people to a pure speech. It's it's literally saying, yes, then I will give, I will turn, I will overturn, I will change, I'll give a sudden change to the people, I will give them a pure lip, I will give them a pure language. And when you think about it, if you know your Bible from all the way in the Old Testament, when was it when language began to get really perverted? The Tower of Babel, right? We see the transformation that is about to happen is all God's doing. First for the nations, then for Israel. There is an outward working of what is happening within. As God changes your heart, things change in your actions, in your attitudes. That's why God calls people to obey, because we actually can, because we have a transformed heart. It shows that. But this claim of restoring pure speech means so much more than just clean language. It's not like you wake up one day and you're saved and you stop swearing. Everyone still does that. Just stub your toe. Right? This is referring to being purified. It it speaks of repentance being accomplished in the hearts of God's people. They're moving from a rampant rebellion to penitent humility. The people of God have been rescued and they've been redeemed. To be purified means to be cleansed. See, purification only happens when we are both forgiven and repentant. The old sin is gone. And the future behavior is not the same as it was in the past. I'm not saying there's an immediate change. Sanctification is an ongoing process. I still remember a conversation with, when I was in grade three with a bunch of kids. So we were talking with a teacher, and one student said, oh, I don't sin anymore. I went, what? Even in grade three, I was like, that's not true. That's impossible. <laughs> we still sin. But you see that there's a change in your desire when you're faced with the reality of your sin? Do you wallow it? Do you play in the mud still? Or do you run away from it? Do you seek to be what God has done? That's what baptism symbolizes. The old gone, the new come. See, this is an ongoing, this is an undoing of what has happened at the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament. you got to remember back to that story. Why were they building this tower? They were building it so that they could get, be like God. So that they could be God. So that they could reach to the heavens. And what does God say in response? That's nah, not happening. And he says, and that's when the languages come in. You can't build something if you can't talk to one another. Right? And language was confused. And what we see here is God undoing the effects of sin. 
There will be a unity. There will be a pure lips. When, when the people said that they were going to be like God and God punished them with that by confusing their language, he was going to undo that. So in verse 9, so that all of them, what was the outcome of this is that so that all of them may call on the name of the Lord. See, the result of this purification then will be a readiness to call on God and worship him with their lives. Notice this happens in two different ways. First, they will call on his name. They will come, they will worship him. They'll come together on a Sunday morning when they could be sleeping in or playing sports or working or whatever it may be because they want to proclaim the goodness of God. Before the people struggled to trust God, and now they are a mar- there's a marvelous turning around. They are affirming his character. This comes out in our worship. As the hearts are transformed, not just on Sunday, but throughout the week. So the first thing that happens is that they call upon the name of the Lord. But the second thing is, is this is really neat. They serve him in one accord. Some translations might use shoulder to shoulder, but literally it means one shoulder. And you think about that, right? You think about uh, carrying something, and, you're, and you're, you're there. I've done enough moving of people to understand the importance of teamwork. And then you get the poor guy who... Everyone else failed, and then he's like holding the piano by himself. And then they're in the hospital with a hernia or something. But you're sitting there, you go, one, two, all right, on three, right? The on three is the important part, right? One shoulder. You see what God has done there? He's completely undone all the confusion that sin had caused, See, the body of Christ comes together. They serve together to worship God together. We do it as one. The only thing that unites us together, look around, folks, the only thing that really unites some of us together is the gospel. And the outpour, the outcome of that and what it does to the church is not only do we gather together to lift up our, our God and to worship him, but we serve him in one accord, with one shoulder. And it's an amazing picture of the practical application of the gospel in our lives. Transformed hearts do amazing things. One shoulder, they're serving God shoulder to shoulder. The unity of the people is coming through. The transformation has happened. And all of these people are gathering from all over the place, from beyond the rivers of Cush, from everywhere. This is a beautiful picture of what we see in Revelation 7, verses 9 to 10. This is one of the reasons why I don't think you should have ethnically specific churches. You see this in Revelation 7, verse 9 to 10. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. From, every, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see what the gospel does to the church? You see what it does? Now that you know what it does, now you see, you, now you can see we can compare it to other things. 
and they shall bring my offerings. Those who were once enemies of God are now worshipers. As God is restoring his people, calling them to faith and repentance, he is also collecting his children back so that they might offer to him an offering of worship. He has adopted us. He has brought us from all over the place. There are probably, I don't know, let's say five to ten different nationalities represented in this building. What an amazing thing that God has done. What an amazing thing. And they all come to enjoy his presence together. In the Westminster Catechism, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? The answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. See, the goal of our redemption is our enjoyment in God, gathering us together from around the world. God is redeeming a people for himself. It is an amazing thing. We get a new birth certificate. No matter what country you're from, when you come to Canada, when you immigrate to Canada, your birth certificate still says your country of origin. I will never be born of London. I will always be born of Thunder Bay, Ontario. That's right. That's probably why I like the cold. But think about that. God gives us a new birth certificate with a new city of origin. We are his. And the outflow of that is that we will worship him as one voice. And we will serve him and enjoy him forever. So what? (laughs) What do I do with all of this? First and foremost, I was praying about this this whole week. This has really been heavy on my heart. My hope is this, is that you can see the beauty of Christ. That's all I care about. If you walk away with anything, is that I hope and pray that you... I don't care if you remember my sermon. I care that you behold the beauty of Christ. I care that you behold the glory of our Lord and Savior who stepped down from his throne to die for our sins and three days later was rose again. Behold his glory. But I got three things for you. All wrapped in this, keep going in the hope for the salvation that God will bring. Keep going in the hope for the salvation that God will bring. First thing is this, rejoice that the church fulfills Old Testament hopes for a single reconciled community from every tribe and language. What an amazing thing. I love it. The local church is a picture of Christ's atoning work of all nations. Of all nations. Of every tribe, of every nation. Coming together with one purpose, to worship God. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to go to another country and attend a church. If you ever do, do it. I encourage you strongly because the reality of this thing becomes like face-to-face. Think about it. I don't understand. I've been to a few countries and a few churches. I've been in, in the Middle East and I've been able to worship in the church. I've been in a prayer meeting in the Middle East. I've been in South America. I've been in churches down there. I don't understand a word they're saying. Not a word. 
I can feel it, though. As they're singing those songs, some of them which I know, just in English, see what God is doing. He's reconciled the community from every tribe and every tongue. The second thing is this. Act on the fact that God saves worshipers without prejudice. Convinced that the fires of God's wrath have already fallen on Jesus for all who will call upon the name of the Lord, regardless of their ethnic heritage. We cannot help but desire that all people have the chance to call out to him for mercy and grace. How dare I withhold the gospel from somebody because of I just don't like them? How dare I? May the joy of knowing that God saves worshipers without ethnic prejudice compel us to share the good news with others that they too may call upon the name of the Lord. There's nothing cooler than seeing God transform someone's life that not only were they not saved, but they were in a culture and a religion that is completely against who God is. And God calls them out of that to make them into a worshiper. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. There's no one who's too far for God's grace. Marvel, the marvel of salvation should motivate our mission. We are commanded to be faithful disciples who are going out to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's our job. And it comes from this. The third thing is this, wait for the Lord. If you're a Christian, we live in this land of in-between. It's this land of in-between of where God has atoned for our sins, the sins of those who he has called to himself through the death of Jesus Christ, but before he has eradicated all evil and carried out his final judgments. See, the already parts require us to call on his name and to serve him together. That's what we see in verses 9 to 10. The not yet parts push us to listen to Zephaniah's call to persist in patience, trust, in the Lord. We hold tightly to the only God who acts for those who wait for him. I, I hold on to that cross with white knuckles. There are days when you don't even want to get out of bed, let alone come and preach. We hold on to the cross and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Waiting is not easy. There are so many temptations around us to compromise, to fear, anxiety, to get our comfort through binge-watching Netflix or to eating Twizzlers. But James 1.12 says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Or what Second Peter says in Second Peter 2, verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. In light of that, I see Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast. There's a great song called Hold Me Fast. Gets me every time. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another 
to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. It's commanded to go to church. It says right there, as is the habit of some. But encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Or what First Peter 5 says. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So what? Keep going in the hope for the salvation that God will bring. Let us today wait for and savor our Savior. Let us continue to worship and to serve him together, shoulder to shoulder, declaring his goodness, being faithful disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. Let us continue to worship him today.